Our text tonight is verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so please have that open in front of you. And this letter of Paul, this second letter to the Corinthians, maybe doesn't always receive the attention that it should. Very often believers are more likely to turn to, you know, but like Romans or Ephesians, which are full of great and high and glorious truths, or maybe Philippians for the joy and gladness, you know, of the believing mind that are manifest there. But there are not many who would see 2 Corinthians as a go-to. You might say, well, why? Well, one preacher gives some helpful reasons. Firstly, that the Apostle Paul speaks much about the difficulties of the Christian life in this letter. And uh, there is something in us, I think, if we were honest, that would rather have the sort of nice, encouraging things than being faced with the, you know, the difficulties and how difficult things will be. But here we have things like 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 to him, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And in the first instance, that's a a reference to the apostles. Beyond that, to all gospel ministers, and of course, then to all who follow the Lord Jesus. It's not easy to hear about the, the sad and the challenging problematic aspects of being a believer and so people would much rather paddle in the shallows than plunge into the depths and then also we maybe struggle at times with this letter because Paul has to defend his own reputation and Paul had to do something very difficult in that regard and he was facing much criticism by some of the people in the church at Corinth and they'd been influenced by these false apostles these false teachers and even though the Lord had used Paul in the conversion and the establishing of the church it wasn't long after whilst his back was turned that they begin to be taken up with these other false teachers who seem so impressive and uh, they did that nasty thing that certain people seem to find easy and they attack Paul and they criticize and they snipe and they try to weaken the bond between Paul the true teaching and this church and so Paul has to speak to this and it's not an easy thing and towards the end of the letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he underscores his calling and his reputation and his authority and he assures them of his love for them and he insists that these opponents are actually servants of Satan and wicked ones appearing as angels of light and just a a quick point on that You know, he's moved to defend himself, not just for himself, but for the sake of the truth that he proclaimed. And they're attacking the man and the message. And there are times when, for the sake of the message, faithful ministers and servants of Christ are attacked as liars and deceivers and, you know, many other unfair and pleasant things. The time comes when the truth of the gospel is at stake, then there must be that defense. And so... Paul does it by making himself a fool in glorying, as he puts it, and gives a a great list of glorying in his sufferings for Christ and his weakness for Christ's strength. And he boasts in his suffering, not his greatness. And that set him apart from all these super and false teachers. But you know, the reality is it's not an easy letter in that regard. And so that's maybe why there are times we would look elsewhere before coming to this. But actually, 
It is a very rich letter. And one of the things that we see tonight in these verses should, God willing, encourage us to see the great depth that is here. And the first thing I want you to see is the gospel of God. You know, our text, Paul says that if this gospel, if our gospel is hid, and he speaks there of a, a particular gospel, the true gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ himself, the gospel that is preached by him and other true apostles, not the false gospel of his opponents. Now, friends, we have to be clear, there are many false gospels in this world. And it's true in Paul's day, it was, and still is true now. There are those who deny the true gospel. They appear as angels of light, and yet ultimately, they are against Christ. And they have something which is no gospel at all. And so, in those days, there were those who were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. Or you think, for example, in 1 John, where he deals with those who are proclaiming error regarding the person of Jesus, and he calls them antichrists. Some were denying that Jesus had a human nature. Or you could look elsewhere in the New Testament. You think of 1 Corinthians, where some were denying the resurrection. We saw it recently when we were considering the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and Paul sort of spends the entirety of 1 Corinthians 15 asserting that there has to be a resurrection of the dead. And he argues with great power and shows all the consequences that if Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain, we're still in our sin, there's no hope. It's a hopelessness there. That's the great danger of these false gospels. But the reality is, of course, Christ is risen. And in our own day, it's a great sadness that there are many false gospels and they're very popular. And they appeal to the flesh and you know, they're, they're often encased in very attractive means and language. But you still have it, the denial of the person of Christ. The denial of the uniqueness of Christ and his work upon the cross. And so you get these liberal false gospels and all manner of different things, all which come against the word of God. There's a great lack of discernment today, sadly. But Paul says, this gospel that I preach is the true gospel. And friends, this is the gospel that we all need. The gospel according to Scripture. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else is worthless. All other messages, worthless. Only this gospel is the one that we need. You know, imagine a man, and he has a key ring. And on it are many, many keys. And all these keys, some are, are beautifully made out of silver. And you know he's got others on there which are made of gold and some are studded with beautiful jewellery. But amidst these keys on his ring, there is one old iron key. But it's the only one that fits the lock. You know, the rest may look handsome and beautiful and precious, impressive. But it's the old iron key which alone fits the lock and opens the door into the kingdom of grace and glory. That's the old gospel. The despised gospel, but it is the true gospel, and it is the way to life. Now, let me give you some of the features, the key features of this gospel as Paul brings it to us. And I want you to notice that when Paul declares the gospel, he always insists that the origin of his gospel, this gospel he preaches, is the love of God the Father. 
God the Father is the source and the, the origin of all the gospel grace that comes into this world. The Father who planned the eternal redemption of lost sinners. The Father who sent his Son into the world that we might live through him. It is God who loved us in Christ before the world began. You know, we have to remember that. God does not love his people because Christ died for them. No, Christ died for them because God loved them. The love is first. The death of Christ is the consequence, the outworking of that love. The death of Christ, the, the method whereby the love of God can have free expression in our souls and in our salvation. And so when Paul declares this, he speaks in such rich tones of this glorious gospel planned even before the foundation of the world. And notice that when Paul declares this gospel, it is by its very nature a glorious thing. We should never downplay the gospel. You know, we live in a world where there are not many things that are truly glorious. You know, we live in a world where almost everything is tarnished, everything, you know, eventually looks tired. But the gospel is glorious. That's the emphasis throughout Scripture. Think of Isaiah 40, where Isaiah prophesies the coming of the Lord Jesus into the world. And he puts it like this at the opening of Isaiah 40. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. And then he goes on, verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. And that glory of the Lord is the gospel, the, the incarnation, the coming into uh, the flesh of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a scene of great glory. And you know, when he came, what happened? You think of those shepherds who witnessed the angels singing at the coming of the Savior. What does it say? The glory of the Lord shone around them. I wonder if you've ever thought of that. Can you imagine the glory of the Lord. You know, and then the announcement of those angelic messengers, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It's a glorious thing. Or you think later on in the life of Christ, think of the transfiguration and the glory scene. There he is on the mountain, and suddenly those three disciples with him are given a glimpse of his true glory. And what does John write? We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see it here in our text. Look at verse 4. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Again, verse 6, same emphasis. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look a bit further, verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We must never lose sight of the fact that the gospel is full of glory. Why? Because it's full of God, full of divine wisdom, full of grace, full of love and power and kindness and mercy. It's full of Christ. You know, in the gospel, God has manifested his own glory. And nowhere else does God glorify himself more than in the gospel. 
of all the ways that God glorifies himself, you know, things like creation, all those things, nothing can compare to the glory of the gospel. And that's what Paul emphasizes. The gospel is a glorious thing. And notice also that when Paul declares this gospel, the center is always Christ. Always Christ. You know, false gospels always come to you in this way. This is what they say to you. You must do something. You need something. You must do something. And the cry of the false gospel preacher is do, do, do. You know, you must pray. You must fast. You must give to the church. You must go to this priest. Or you must take this and you must have that. And you must do it and work for it and all the rest. That's not the gospel. The real gospel preacher is coming with the message of done. Done, done, done. All in Christ. He has finished the work. There's no contribution that you and I can make. Christ has done it all. Christ is the Savior. He is salvation. He is the Lord, our righteousness. He is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Everything is in him. And so, friend, you need to know you can't contribute anything to save yourself. You know, you, you can't do anything to somehow make the gospel better. You don't have to add anything. That's what the false gospels do. They always add something extra. But people, you know, they always try. Did it in the New Testament churches. Think of the church at Galatia, drawn in by these false teachers, and they said, well, you know, you need Jesus, but you also therefore need to, you've got to keep the law. And you, you know, you, you, you really must be circumcised, and you've got to have this, and you've got to have that. That's not the gospel. The gospel of God says that salvation is the free gift of God. You come with nothing, and by his grace, God gives you everything. It's from faith to faith, and you are granted this, including heaven and God and Christ and glory and everything else. It's a wonderful gift. And the only thing you need to do is to confess your spiritual bankruptcy and to cry out to God in your need, to cry out to God for deliverance and trust the Savior. And you know something? Even the ability to do that is a gift of his grace. Don't try to buy it. Don't try to work for it. We ask for it. We cry out to it. And you say, well, how can that be? Because Christ has done it all. And when Paul preaches, it's full of Christ. Christ has shed his blood. Christ risen from the dead, salvation totally and completely finished and done. It is done. And all we can do is confess that we are empty sinners and simply say, Lord, please, please give me this most precious gift, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. That's the way. And the question comes, what of you this night? Have you ever asked God to give you Christ? Have you ever asked the Lord to give him this, give you this wonderful salvation in him? Have you ever asked him to give you this blessing of grace in your soul and in your heart? You know, you can know it. There's that wonderful verse in Jeremiah 29 where God says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You know, what could be better? Don't make the gospel complicated. Yes, it is utterly profound. And, you know, we'll, we'll never come to the end of it. It's so glorious and marvelous. And yet at the same time, it is stunningly simple. Christ alone. That's the gospel. Christ, we need him.
And so that's what Paul is speaking of when he says, this gospel, our gospel, the gospel of God. But then we have this great challenge in this thing that comes in our text, which is the fact that many are blind to the gospel. And he deals with it. Look at verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, and we're told that there are many who are blind to the gospel, it's hidden from them, hidden from the perishing. But you say, well, you know, who is a key factor in this? Well, you know, Paul goes on and he says, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should shine on them. And so we're brought into this whole area of spiritual battle and conflict. And the God of this world is referred to here as Satan. Now, this doesn't mean that he is equivalent to God. But God permits the enemy to have great power in this world. And he wields great influence, including blinding people to the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, just think for a moment. You know, of all of the preachers of the gospel who ever lived apart from the Lord Jesus, but of all the mere men who ever preached the gospel, there was never any greater than the Apostle Paul. You know, we might esteem men like, you know, Calvin and Spurgeon and Whitfield and, and others, Lloyd-Jones, wherever it may be, Paul was greater than them. And yet there were still many who heard his preaching and were blind. You know, that's an amazing thing. This wonderful preacher, this remarkable theologian by the grace of God, this outstanding orator, this really genius of geniuses, this man whom God raised up, the Apostle Paul, anointed of God, the man who would establish churches all over the European world, utterly sound, anointed of God. But even when Paul preached, he experienced what preachers know today. Many people don't understand they don't see, they, they don't believe. They don't get any benefit from the preaching of the word. Why? Because the gospel is hidden from some. And part of the explanation for that is Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the eyes of many. You know, all the way through Acts, you see this. You see it time and time again. Think of Peter. Peter is preaching following Pentecost and that remarkable sermon that God blessed and the work is going on in the early church wasn't long. And the Jewish authorities were intervening, trying to stop the preaching of the gospel, commanding them not to speak the name of Christ or face the consequences. And again and again, they want to stop the apostles preaching the name of Christ. They hate the gospel, come against the gospel, even though there is this remarkable ministry that is taking place. Or you think of Paul and his early ministry on the mission field, Acts 13, and he's in the synagogues, and he's in the cities and the towns, and he's preaching the word of God. And wherever he went, there would be Jews and Gentiles opposed to him. And you say, well, why did such a mighty preacher face such a reaction? You know, was he, was he preaching badly? Was he, was he not persuasive enough? Well, no, a major part of the reason was that the God of this world blinds some people to the truths of the gospel. They don't see the truth. They don't understand. And, you know, Satan blinds people, uh, as one preacher says, by pride and prejudice. And he's very good at it. And so people, they're too proud to believe. 
You know, you, you preach a crucified Savior, one who went to the cross to die in their place. You, you preach the fact that he rose again. You preach the fact that they need him, that they can't save themselves. They're too proud to receive that truth. They don't want that gospel. They want to save themselves. They, they want something to appeal to their ego. They want to be involved themselves and, and look at their own ability and their own strength. But when God works, there are some who believe and their pride is broken. All the barriers are removed and they're convicted of their sin and they see their helplessness and they must have Christ. You know, maybe you're here tonight and you've never come to a personal knowing of Jesus Christ. You've never been saved. You know, our heart is for you. You know, I would long for you to come to know the Saviour for yourself, to hear his voice. But you have to turn from all of your pride, all your prejudices, all those things, and stoop low to receive this gift of grace. Not the righteous, Jesus came to say. You know, Jesus prayed, I thank you, Father, Matthew 11, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. You know, it says, doesn't it, in the New Testament, not many rich, not many mighty, not many kings, not many wise are saved. Some are, but not many. It's mainly the poor of us, the ordinary, like me. They know the blessing of salvation. God will not have anyone to glory or to boast in themselves. You know, the seeker of the gospel is he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. You say, well, what does Satan blind people to? What does it look like? Well, Satan does not want people to see that the gospel is full of the love of God. You know, the devil has no love. He doesn't understand love. He cannot simulate or imitate it. He only has hatred. He does not understand how God can be full of this love to undeserving sinners. So the devil always tries to make people suspicious of the love of God or the grace of God of the gospel. And if you're still blind to the gospel, let me tell you very clearly that God is a God of life. And he delights to save sinners. He delights to give grace to people like you and me. And it's no presumption to receive the gift of eternal life. You'll never be rebuked by God by asking for what he promises to give. He loves to give and to go on giving. His love is eternal and it's wonderful and it's immeasurable. And yet the devil fills people with suspicion of the love of God. And he makes them feel that God doesn't care, that God's vindictive, that God's aloof. But God is love and he is ready to save. He is ready to give you everything that the gospel promises. And all that by the grace of God you would ask him for it. And that you would prove him and see how rich in grace he is to all that call upon his name. But Satan blinds people to the love of God that is there in the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. And also Satan blinds people to the freedom with which the gospel is given. Do you know, there are no conditions to the gospel in that sense. No strings attached. You know, this world really, if ever, gives us something for free without there being strings attached. Certain things, you know, come to us. They're too good to be true. They're not as free as they first appeared. But the gospel isn't like that. 
It comes to the sinner and God says, here is eternal life. Here is my gift to you. Revelation 22. Let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the devil wants you to doubt the truth of that. And he will manipulate even great truths and make them a barrier. Let me give you an example. You know, those who go around and say, well, you know, what if I'm not one of the elect? You know, how, how do I know? Well, here it is. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus Christ and follow him. You can only come if you're called. You know, the Lord is at work. And so come to him. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You know, Satan wants you to doubt these great promises of the word of God and the truth of the gospel. And also, Satan blinds people to the great preciousness, the inestimable preciousness of knowing Jesus Christ. He blinds people to the fact that this gospel, this blessing of knowing Christ is worth losing everything to get. You know, remember in Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus told a number of parables and they include the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price. And the Lord says the kingdom of heaven is like this, this treasure hidden in a field when a man finds it, he sells all that he has to go and buy that field. Or the kingdom of heaven like a pearl of great price which when an expert sea merchant sees it, he sells all that he has so that he can get that pearl. True conversion True belief is when a person sees that knowing Christ, having him as their Lord and Savior, is worth abandoning everything for him. Think of Paul himself. He speaks of this in Philippians 3. He had status. He had riches. He had heritage. He thought he was spiritually rich. He couldn't aspire any further. But then he was faced with Christ. And what happened? Well, tell you he tells us in Philippians 3 what things were gained to me these I have counted loss for Christ yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ that I may know him that is the man buying the field for the treasure. That is the man buying the pearl. He is willing to give up everything if it means knowing Christ. Knowing and appropriating Jesus Christ, the greatest treasure. And friend, it costs to follow Christ. But that pearl and treasure, they are so valuable, so valuable. It's worth any cost. That's what those parables say. And those who are convinced of the importance of salvation, the importance of Christ, will give up everything to know him, to have gained Christ and him crucified and have that hope of the resurrection of the dead. Nothing compares to that. Nothing compares to being saved, of knowing sins forgiven and being right with God. It's worth giving up everything in order to believe in him and trust him and one day to be with him. 
Friend, do you know that treasure? Do you have it? You know, what does anything matter provided in the end our brief life here below we go to be with him? You know, maybe in the goodness of God, you know, you feel that twinge in your conscience and would God that I could speak more powerfully than I do. Nothing that you have got matters like knowing Jesus Christ. Don't allow the devil to blind you anymore to the extreme value of your own soul and the extreme preciousness of Christ and believe in the gospel. It is a tragedy and it is so frustrating and grievous, even enraging at times, the way society is so tilted and so organized to drive everybody away from God and from Christ and from the salvation that is found in him. But that's what the world is like. And the devil is behind it, blinding people's minds. And you say, well, what's the solution? If that's the extent of the problem, well, I finish with this. What's the solution? God must break in by spirit. The glory of the gospel, the wonders of redeeming love, the future hope, they cannot be worked out. They cannot be rationalized by human means. They are revealed by the work of God in and through the Holy Spirit. The wisdom of God, the word of the cross, the word of God's testimony, the truth of the scriptures, God has revealed them to us through his spirit. And conversion occurs when the light of the glory of God shines into a person's heart and they are brought to see spiritually and to see the way of life. You know, and it transforms entirely. Let me give you some ways it transforms. You know, when that light shines in the sinner's heart, they see that their life mustn't any longer be centered around themselves, but around Christ. They love him. He's the center. No longer I, but Christ. You know, the sinner is centered upon self, but not the believer. Christ is central. When the light of the gospel shines in a person's heart, they no longer live to please themselves. They want to please and glorify God. You know, when the light of the gospel shines in a person's heart, they see that as good as earthly friends are, none compared to having heavenly friends. You know, when we believe that we may lose earthly friends in this world, when we come to Christ, you know, there may be those within our families or our friendship groups who want nothing more to do with us. But as believers, by grace, we gain the friendship of God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, angels, archangels, brothers and sisters in the Lord. You don't lose out when you come to the Lord Jesus. And when the light of the gospel shines in a person's heart, they see that all this world's apparent knowledge is nothing in comparison with the knowledge that is found in the Word of God. This Bible has the way to glory in it, and the believer knows it is the book of books, the truth of God. They love the word. And when the light of the gospel shines in a person's heart, they see that all their joys are not here in this life, but their truest joys are yet to come in the kingdom of glory. You know, a believer knows that the best is yet to come. This world is not the end. They are looking for a future home. You know, as we considered this morning, looking for that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And all the glory of this world pales into a vain shadow 
compared with the excellency of the glory and the cross and the death of our Lord Jesus. And when a person is converted, they are a new creation. He opens their eyes and they see things that they've never seen before in the word of God. He he opens our ears. Our our ears are unstopped and we hear the, the powerful word of God. And it becomes real to us. And when God works on the sinner, they are transformed and they fall in love with Jesus Christ. Oh, they love him. They love him. And they long to be with him. God commands the light to shine out of the darkness shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If only I could convince you, if only I could convince you of the great importance of knowing Christ, but I can't do it. Only God can give you eyes to see and ears to hear. And however old or young you may be, you know, I would to God that every one of you would have this light shining in your heart this night. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him for yourself? Have you met Christ in your own life? Have you come out of darkness into light? Have you been granted sight? And I would pray that above all the noise of this world, you should know that God hears the cry of desperation and faith. And if in your heart this night you truly desire to know the way to heaven, and if in your heart you are asking God to give you light and understanding and grace, you can know this that he is listening, he is listening to what you are saying in your heart of hearts and in the depth of your soul. Do you have that faith? Have you been delivered from this blindness? I urge you, don't leave this place without crying out, oh God, save me. Give me to believe in the Savior. May I know something of this glory and of this wonder. Oh God, please. Have mercy upon me. And when you call upon him like that, he will hear you and he will answer. You know, even all of Satan's attempts to blind sinners, you know, cannot match the power of God to deliver sinners from such blindness and give them sight. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And if this night you think, well, can he save me? Can he deal with me? Yes, he can. And he can do it this night. And we pray that he would, that you might be able to rejoice, to hear his call, and to know what it is to be in Christ. Nothing compares. And I pray that God would give you eyes to see and ears to hear the glory of Christ. Wonderful thing, the gospel, the power of God. May it be known in you and in me. Amen. (laughs)